listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners. This is your host, Sterling Chapman. And as always, I'm joined here with my lovely assistant, just kidding, my <laughs> business partner, Andrew. <laughs> Today, we have a really cool guest on the show. I actually decided to attend the Rod Cleef virtual boot camp last weekend, and she was a panelist on there, and I was really impressed with her story. And so I reached out, and she agreed to join us on the show today. So super excited to have Mandy McAllister with us today. Mandy is the co-founder of Good Fortune Capital and the founder of Aspiring Women Achieving More. Mandy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Mandy. You look like Vanna White, Andrew, I must say. No, <laughs> no that's good. <laughs> now he's turning no. red for those of y'all who are just listening and not watching. The, not watching Tom is going to want to go watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Something unusual here. Mandy is, she lives in Chicago, but she's currently in Indianapolis. Yes. So if you are, if you are on YouTube, I'm coming at you for my car, driving back, checking out some assets. She's also also our first guest to join from the car. So I'll go check out the YouTube. You can see Andrew's red face and, and Mandy's car interior. (laughs) so good so so mandy tell us your story how did you become a real estate investor yeah so both my parents were self-employed growing up so it was always kind of in my blood and then in college i remember being at a party at a friend's house and she was explaining that her dad bought the house and they rented the rooms to some of our other sorority sisters and i just thought oh my gosh this is the most incredible thing ever you just keep that extra money right? So then fast forward a bunch of years and I had plans to buy and rehab and then move out of a condo and rent that out. But 2008 is when this all started. Didn't happen like I thought it would. Finally became a landlord in 2014 and then bought my first fourplex for, you know, express purpose of investment in 2016. So kind of got bit by the bug then and did what I call go pro in terms of my investing career. Okay. So the fourplex was your first investment. Now, did you live in one of the units? Did you house hack it? No. So I guess theoretically, my condo that's downtown Chicago became a rental and I still own it. I actually just listed it to sell. So if you're looking in the West Loop of Chicago, I could totally hook you up. (laughs) That became a rental. And then I bought by a college. I bought by Illinois State University, a couple hours from where I live in Chicago. Did you burn that... uh... That investment, tell us a little bit more about that. The fourplex? Yeah. So the interesting thing there was it was listed just on the normal MLS because it was a mom and pop owner because it's a fourplex residential and they were renting to anybody off the street. It was an unfurnished rental. But if you're really close to a, a college, lots of times they'll furnish and then rent by the bedroom at a much higher rate as a furnished student rental. So I realized that this was being rented to anybody off the street unfurnished rather than furnished as a student rental. And there was a $400 upside in rent if I would choose to furnish. So I did. And then I have it managed by a group who has branded themselves as property managers to kids who attend the college and they helped me furnish it. And now, you know, four years later, we went from 
450 when I acquired it to 825 in rent. Oh wow. So what was your experience like with the with the college kids? I just I think of myself in college and all of the places I destroyed. And I just I would, right? I'd be terrified that karma would come back to me on that one. But I'm just curious, what was your experience like? Did you have some rambunctious kids or or did it all go pretty smooth? So a couple of notes on that. You know, first off, <laughs> I bought one bedrooms because I thought, oh, this will be more not your kids who want to throw a kegger in their sophomore year. This is going to be, you know, graduate students or the super bookish, you know, whoever wants to be alone. Well, that kid is not going to tear up an apartment the way frat boys like you, Sterling, would have, <laughs> have torn up an apartment. But if you, if you also think about, you know, so much of this real estate investing game is a willingness to do what other people won't do. Those rewards are underneath a little bit of something that somebody else doesn't want to dig into. And a lot of our contemporaries think that kids are going to ruin places. Well, guess what? I just have their parents co-sign and we keep a hefty deposit. So if they do ruin a wall, I just use that money to fix the wall. So I think it's something that is a thin enough group of investors that there's still large upside to be had. So you keep thinking that it's, it's too hard. <laughs> And I'll just keep buying the student rentals. <laughs> so is that something you continued to do after the first fourplex? You, you stayed in student housing? First off, I loved that property manager so much. They made my life so easy. I got spoiled rotten. They're I've never incredible. heard anybody say that before. Well, I'm telling <laughs> <Unusual>. you. <laughs> I know. So when you find that, you, you hold on to it and you, Sammy, student apartment mart. I hope everybody calls him. Call my guy, Mark. He's incredible. So anyway, I don't love Illinois. I don't love the way we do politics. I don't love our landlord friendliness. I don't love that because of our mismanagement of our state, kids are leaving the state to attend college. So that kind of dwindles that market. So I chose not to double down in Chicago. So for a second deal, I went just over the border into Wisconsin, into Kenosha and Mm -hmm. bought a six-plex there. And was that in a college town? No. Well, there are student rentals. I pivoted away from student rentals. Actually, part of this trip in Indy that I'm coming to you from, we're considering 165 units in a college town in Indiana. That would be kind of a reposition to kind of the same story on steroids of that fourplex. So it's still in the back of my mind because I've seen cool stuff happen with it. Hasn't left my mind, hasn't been something that I've really engaged in until literally this minute. Yeah, so I, I don't even think we've brought that up so far on the show, but the reason that we've we've heard of you and that you were on the panel in the first place is not because of your, your fourplexes, it's because of your large multifamily deals. So can you tell us a little bit about the success you've had in the large multifamily space and what that transition was like going from small multifamilies to, to the bigger stuff? Sure. Uh, So I'll tell you, I'm a person who likes to feel like I walk before I run. I want to know that I have made whatever mistake I'm going to make on a, you know, a fourplex before I dive into a 40 or a 400. So I really wanted to know that I knew how to walk the walk. So I am still very glad that I chose to go do a couple smaller layups before digging into bigger stuff. So my progression kind of was that four and then that six. And then I bought into a syndication as a limited partner for express purpose of learning the communication. 
for passive investors. So I want to know what kind of a communication can I expect? What sort of engagement questions do I have as a passive investor? And I actually also chose to self-direct some IRA funds to go into that syndication so that I had experience for future syndications, real world experience. So that 130 unit just went full cycle that I was a limited partner in. And then just in September, actually closed on a joint venture on a 53 unit in Indianapolis. And just like you hear all the time, the law of the first deal, as soon as you close that first deal and these brokers know that you are legit, you are automatically the pretty girl at the dance. (laughs) And everybody wants to show you everything that they're working with. And it's been really cool, which is is why we find ourselves looking at some off-market deals today. So, you know, what I'll tell you in terms of the transition, knowing that I had a real basis for understanding of the mechanics of managing property on my own from the four and the six and the I didn't mention any of the single family stuff that I'd done in there too, but it's I my portfolio that's solely owned is 22 units. And then limited partnerships, I was in 130. And then joint venture, I'm in this 53 and we have an LOI on another. I love how you segment those out because as we were talking about before we started recording, most people don't. They'll come on and say, oh, I have 700 units because they invested 25 grand in Bill's, you know, 470 unit deal. Right. Like, well, uh, that, you know, uh, so we try and drill down on this show into kind of like yeah. what exactly the investments are and what impact they've had on your life. So yeah. I do want to hear more about the big multifamily projects, but first, can you back up a little bit? What's going on with those single family houses that you kind of skipped over? How did you acquire those? Did you burr them? Did you just save up down payments for each one? What's the story there? Why multifamily too? So I'm kind of an opportunist, I'll call it. And I really feel like in the throes of my 52 unit, I saw a couple single family homes that had almost $100,000 in upside for each. And I, I mean... They had $1,300 leases on them and I could buy for cash. So I did those at the same time as my 53 unit. So I'm an opportunist. I keep telling everybody I'm going to stop buying single family houses after this next one. And I've, I've been saying that for a year now, but I just, every time they pop up and there's that much like equity potential there, I just can't, I can't say no. It's like Lay's potato chips. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you can't eat just one. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about this 53 unit, what your role mm-hmm. in it is, how you found it, and just kind of give us give us the rundown. Yeah, you got it. So my business partner in finding that deal and I run a meetup out of Chicago. So we knew how the other one communicated. We knew the work ethic of the other one. We knew kind of our working relationship together was was very good because of the meetups that we had done in Chicagoland. And we, you know, came across a guy who had a lot of equity and not a lot of time, but still wanted to be very active. So uh, my partner is a broker by profession uh, in Chicagoland. And he knew that I loved indie. He loved indie as well. So you know, we made some broker relationships down here and came across this used to be an assisted living facility that was repositioned by a group. And now it was a stabilized asset. It's beautiful. We really put a different 
what we hear in multifamily a lot is value add, value add, value add, right? So my mildly contrarian part of my brain thinks, how can I gain the benefits to multifamily and not be looking in the exact same pile as everybody else? that's looking, right? So rather than look at the 200 unit value add in these 10 growth markets that everybody else is looking at, what things am I willing to give up, right? So I can, I'm willing to give up a little bit on size because I think, you know, you can still get the economies of scale largely if you can still get the good Fannie or Freddie debt. And you can, in terms of stabilized versus value add, if you look at caps, like if you're underwriting a deal, in theory, you solely go off of the NOI, right? But if you know there's upside to be had, you are not going to be a competitive offer if you don't offer paying for some of that upside. You know what I'm saying? So why would I take the risk to you know, hopefully get to achieve this upside when I could just buy it in place and lock it down for a very long term? So what we did with this 53 unit after we found it was we decided as a team, the three of us, that what we want is cash flow first and ended up taking down the stabilized asset rather than a bad one. Was that pre-COVID or post-COVID? That was during COVID. During COVID. <laughs> I don't think there is a post-COVID yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. We're still in it. So what was your underwriting? What did your underwriting look like? What did you change in that that you would have, did you do yeah. anything different? So the way I look at underwriting in general, it's like this Goldilocks approach as I explain it. So I want to run the numbers, you know, a best case scenario, everything goes my way. I get totally the, the upside of the rehab that I think I'm going to get and yada, yada, best case scenario. And then I also want to know the worst case scenario. Like it hits the fan. Where is my break-even point? How much economic vacancy can I withstand and still not have to come out of pocket? And then there's the Goldilocks, right? Like everything that I think will happen with pretty conservative assumptions on exit cap, on growth rates in terms of income and all that jazz, really conservative. So if I'm shopping to an investor, we talk Goldilocks. If I'm preparing for the worst, I want to get comfortable with that worst case scenario before ever considering moving forward. So in my worst case scenario on this 53 unit, we were able to be 42% economically vacant before we would hit the break-even point. So what I did was, so my master's is in economics, so I kind of geek out over this analysis. I started thinking, all right, which jobs are stable and which jobs aren't stable? The jobs that are stable are like your computer programmers and your police officers, well, I mean, (laughs) your nurses or whatever, like the jobs that you need a college education for are doing quite well right now. People still have their jobs. They're just doing those jobs in a different way. The ones that have suffered a lot are the ones where you don't need a college education, your bartenders, your manicurists, your so on and so forth, right? So what I did is I got from the old property manager uh, applications of all of the current residents. And on your application, you had to fill out what your job is and kind of throw them in a pile of, okay, I think this is a college education job-ish best guess. And this is a non-college education job. Well, we were like 20%-ish of all the the jobs were in that kind of danger bucket. And so I felt like knowing that our break-even point was 42%, I felt really good about still moving forward. Awesome. That's a really unique approach that 
I would have never thought of. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's excellent. So you said it was July you closed on this asset? No, we uh, just September. Like it was legit throes of COVID. Have you learned anything from this process? Like any takeaways that you might do differently next time? You know, there's, there's some kind of logistical things. I started keeping all of like my personal financial statement stuff in a Dropbox so that I could have that easy to send off to people when we were talking to different lenders on things. That is a hack that I will never go back on. Everything will always have a Dropbox link to you guys. So that would probably be mechanically number one. Number two, I mean, because I have kissed so many frogs in this multifamily space, I really feel like my series of Goldilocks approach of underwriting really paid off this time and helped us get comfortable with potential downsides to plan ahead so that we were always a few steps ahead. So collections have been high 90% for each subsequent month. So we're, we're pretty happy with it, but we're still, you know, only a few months out. Awesome. So, so what's next for you? What kind of assets are you looking for now? You're driving around looking as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we visited the recent acquisition and then we visited two other well, one off-market and one on-market property, one just hit. One was 125 units. It has some upside. I don't know. We're going to have to sharpen our pencil a little bit. And I don't know that it totally meets what we're looking for. It'll be a pretty thin deal. And in terms of... Okay, I'm going to get on a soapbox for a minute. This is a thing I think about that I haven't totally heard a lot of people talk about. So I want to get your two cents on it. Um if we're looking right, if, if we're in call it a five cap atmosphere now, and we're going to achieve whatever value add to sell or, you know, refinance to pull out the upside. And by that time we are, we've inflated to it, call it a six cap, not terribly outside the realm of possibilities sure. to go from a five to a six as we can implement a business plan. That is a 20% increase. So the equation is such that my NOI is going to have to increase by 20% just to keep up on value, right? So I'm a little nervous about value add in this atmosphere because the law of small numbers tells us that that inflation is, it's razor sharp. Like it it inflates exponentially with each lower cap tick you get. On note of that soapbox, what always gets me is Whenever people are saying, why multifamily, why multifamily, they always say, oh, well, you have complete control of the value add and you can force appreciation. No, you can't. You can force net operating income. But what if the cap rate changes? Like the cap rate moves around just like the comps move around in residential. So it's not, it's not this like 100% guaranteed if I increase net operating income by this, this is going to be the result. Maybe if you do it overnight, but when you're stretching out over three years, a lot could happen in three years. Word to your mother. I'll tell you what, like what you just described though does happen to be true if you've only been investing since call it, you know, 2010. Sure. You know, and that's, I mean, it's it's so funny how humans have this very short, yeah. like- Everybody's a genius in a bull market. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I, I feel like when the tide goes back out, we're going to see, you know, who's been swimming naked sure. and there might be some naked syndicators. 
I always say that to my bankers when I'm doing like my single family projects because they all give me these yeah. like 20 year AM, five year balloons. And I'm like, I really want to get out of these five year balloons. Like, why? They're like, at the end of the five years, we'll just redo it. And I'm like, well, yeah, you say that now, but like, right. what if we're an apocalyptic bank crisis in five years? You're not going to redo it then. Right. And I'm going to owe all <laughs> this money. Like, you're just basing it off of the last 10 years. You don't know what the next 10 are going to bring. Yeah. That's why us as bankers actually do a, a break-even analysis based on rates too. We do that on what you know the rate shock it based on how how high you know say a rate goes up four percent. You know how how will the property do? Andrew's Mark. a commercial banker. That's how we met. So I'm he's not throwing numbers stuff, guy. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> <Appreciate> <laughs> So what advice do you have for our listeners who are out there thinking about getting started? I always ask this, like for people like you who have really taken both steps, you know, you've gone from a normal job to a real estate investor with your fourplex and your single family houses, and then you've, you've taken the next step into the large multifamily. I want two answers. One is what advice do you have for all the people out there stuck in W-2s who aren't doing anything that are interested in going into real estate investing? And then the second part of the question is what advice do you have for those who are stuck in the small multifamily, single family space that are interested in making that leap to the large multifamily? I feel very firmly that mindset where you're headed that is way more than 80% of anything you do in your whole life, right? So I was scared to death of the first, my fourplex, you guys, was $120,000, $120,000. And I was scared to death, right? So it's whatever power you give that. So, I mean, Mandy giving Mandy before her first transaction advice, you know, get comfortable with that downside. Know that you're going to be alive on the other side of it. In real estate, you only lose your real estate if you run out of money, right? So if your balloon adjusts at the wrong time, or if you know a huge capex happens and you can't afford it, that's how you lose property. But if you just keep a rainy day fund and you're comfortable with what the downside is, then it's a no-brainer to move forward. It's such an asynchronous risk return that you've got to do it. So just get comfortable with the downside and jump in. I would say the first, that first piece of advice. And then that second piece of advice, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And because I started a meetup, you know, people would look at me like I was the smartest guy in the room and I wasn't, you know. That's so, why I started a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I really just wanted to scratch my own itch and talk about this stuff. And because I'm so curious, like I want to be the guy asking the questions, you know? So I hear you. But you know, end of the day, the leap into the bigger stuff is I've really surrounded myself with people that I feel like have a high level of integrity and a really high level of work ethic. And they're my business partner, Brian, who I just left Mexican with. I mean, his, what he's really, really great at, I'm not so great at. And my, you know, kind of enthusiasm, talk stuff through with guys like you, like that's not really his jam, you know? So we, we work together really, really well. We complement each other well. So find your partner. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of partners, Andrew, you want to kick off our radio round? Yeah, let's do that. So we're, we're going to ask you three questions. First question, what is your favorite book? Oh, I have too many to list you guys, but I'll give you a couple. 
actually, maybe for your notes, I'll give you my whole list of, of all of them. But I do a book or two on Audible every single week. So I do about 100 books a year. So I'll tell you, for me, being single mama, I do still have a W-2, multifamily investor. The ability to drill down on the one right next move is paramount in terms of me getting stuff done in anything of my life. So I would say Gary Keller's The One Thing really helped shape the way I focus on my life and the way I time block in order to get stuff done. Yeah, I just got done reading that. It's a great one. I just got done reading it as well. And I think you're the third guest who has said that. Ah, well, bummer. <laughs> well, I want to say something else now. Actually, okay. Audible, I'm calling another one. I just finished The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, Vishen Lakiani. He's the guy who started Minds Valley. It's really a systematic approach to becoming your very best self in every piece of your life. What is it so called? The, co- the Code of the Extraordinary Mind. And the follow-up to that is The Buddha and the Badass. I don't think anybody's ever mentioned that book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. What is your favorite quote? This one rings true in a way more and more deeply every single year of my life. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you are right. That's uh, Henry like that. Ford. Classic. Yeah, I like that. That's great. So what do you like to do for fun? I mean, when I, well, actually, real estate is kind of my hobby because I still <laughs> W2 and I, uh, I, I play a lot of cars with my four and a half year old. I've probably seen Inside Out 142 times. Um, <laughs> but I'm just getting back into, I played volleyball through college and it, I'm just getting back into, I moved to a neighborhood where a bunch of my friends are. So we're starting to play again. Awesome. Old lady volleyball is what I do. (laughs) So how can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? Or how can our our women listeners find out more about aspiring women achieving more? Thank you for that. So easiest way to find me is mandymcallister.com. And I actually, with this mindset stuff, we just started a spinoff of my friend Barry Griffith's podcast, doing a kind of a mindset deep dive and make actionable steps of how we're going to do it. He's uh, wrestling with real estate. If you don't know him, I'll introduce you. He's fantastic. And Aspiring Women Achieving More, it's a really engaged group of women who primarily through Facebook help each other build our businesses and work on whatever our goals are. So we show up as ourselves for ourselves in every moment. And we really, it's a group of women lifting each other up. So you can find us on Facebook slash groups slash A-W-A-M group. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mandy, thank you for joining us. I learned a ton. It was really exciting and we will definitely keep following and can't wait to uh, keep up with your journey. You guys are wonderful. Thank you for this. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. 
We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.